after about one year in the role, what I what I look back on and reflected was the whole journey was about here because actually I'm really good at this now. I think I'm now in the job I was always destined to be in. What should I do for others? That was really kind of my big reflection is that what should I do for others now? How can I create an organisation here that actually becomes world-class at what it does for all the things that are not just financial. Never stop investing in yourself, ever. I'm Richard Osborne and this is Drive, the business podcast where I speak to business owners and small business founders about their journeys and the lessons they've learned along the way, helping share this knowledge with you of what makes a small business successful. Today I'm talking to Phil Jones. This is somebody who started out on a council estate, free school meals, his first job was a barman. Not the kind of person typically you would expect to be the CEO of Brother UK, the head office of a multinational 100 year old plus business. The lessons he shares with us today stem from his belief and his passion for culture and bringing out the best in people. He shares with us on this podcast useful tips and advice that you can learn from how he's implemented a culture, a supportive culture and an entrepreneurial culture within Brother UK. Phil, thank you for coming in and it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks Richard, I'm really excited to be here and have a chat with you today. It's uh, what caught my eye when um, led to me reaching out and asking if you'd come on the podcast is I saw some posts from Brother um, and yourself, he was reassuring these about how Brother is engaging with, and in my world we call it employer engagement, uh, both from when I've got my school governor hat on and when I'm volunteering in schools, where we're talking about businesses that will engage with schools, engage with the pupils to make what they are doing in school real and learning. And the, I just, from that moment thought, here's a guy who clearly has some very strong supportive values um, in so many levels. And the more I looked into yourself, the more I prepared for today, uh, the more and more that became real. So it's brilliant. I'm very excited to be sitting here chatting to you. Um, And what I'd like to do is approach things in a slightly different angle to how I normally do, because I'd love to have a a conversation about so many things uh, which we we'll get to but I'd like to understand a bit about yourself Phil Jones what drives you and what led a chap who um, from your own mission hasn't gone to university hasn't done high level degree studies to move to find yourself running the UK division um, office of brother a over 100 year old multinational company Yes, it's a bit of a story, but I will try for the benefit, really, of your listeners to try and keep this compressed because um, I'm sure there's lots of other things that we can cover. But um, I'm one of those, I guess, individuals where if you um, looked at where I started, you, you would probably go where I am is not a pathway where uh, you know somebody who started like that would end up. So I, I'm a typical um, council house kid who went through my whole school years on free dinners um, and a single parent family, uh, no father in my life, 
and academically not brilliant. Um, had probably had very low confidence at school, didn't enjoy school very much, uh, wasn't academic. Um, and back in the day when we did something called O-levels, uh, yeah. for the, those old enough to remember, um, I, I achieved two O-levels in, in my exams. And, you know, got that. And, and my poor mum was like, but you've got to get to college. You have to go to college. So I'm like, okay, mum. So I had to go back to sixth form for a year just to get enough to scrape through to go and do a BTEC in business at Bracknell College, which I did. Mm. And actually going to college was a bit of a game changer for me because I preferred college to school. College was a bit more grown up. And actually then I began to learn about business, you know, legals, business, economics, all of these sorts of things. Oh, I quite like it. And I've developed lots of new friends. So finished uh, my BTEC in business, which was great. And of course, mum was then going, well, you need to go to university. And actually in the summer holidays, I'd ended up um, working in the pubs. And I really enjoyed the pubs because it was like I had loads of money. And because, uh, you know, I enjoyed the people that were in the pub. And uh, the pub I was in at the time, the, um, a sort of troubleshooter came to, because the pub had a few issues uh, on, you know, financially at the time, turned it around, and then she said, would you like to come with me to the next pub that I'm going to, and maybe you could consider a career in the pub trade? So I thought, well, do you know what? Why not? So told mum, look, mum, I'm not going to uni. I'm going to go away and, and sort of go on this management course in the pub trade. Then ended up in a, you know, moved to this pub in, uh, in just outside of Ilford, actually, and, and Dagenham in Essex. And yeah, that was quite a, that was quite <laughs> an interesting period of my life. It's like the Wild West, basically. It was, you know, gangsters, drug dealing, crime, um, all the things that you perhaps might watch on episodes of EastEnders that you think don't exist in life do exist. And, and I was in the middle of it. Really, standards um, are real. Yeah, yeah. And again, yeah. I don't want to overgeneralise for the for the people from the East End listening, but but actually, just where I was working, it was pretty. It was pretty um, violent, and um, yeah, uh, it was the day I decided to leave. Was actually the day where we'd banned somebody the night before, and they said we're going to come back and burn the pub down. And I used to live above the pub, right? And they were good to their word. So right. I had stones at my window and, and they you know, opened the window up and someone said, your pub's on fire, mate, you need to get out. And, and yeah, the pub yeah. had been set alight. And it was the following day, I went to the Tottenham Court Road in London yeah. and I walked in the first recruitment consultant I've, I came across called Alexander Mann at the time and just said, what have you got? And they said, we've just got something coming now, which is a trainee salesperson selling photocopies in the city of London, which you fancy that, I'll, I'll give it a go. And that's basically where I got started. So, um, yeah, it's unconventional um, that, that suddenly then I just happened to walk into this serendipitous, brilliant trainee salesperson job. And probably for years, I wasn't very good at sales. I, I tried, if, you know, in user sales, I wasn't very good at it. And long story short, um, I ended up um, selling fax machines in a, a dealer in Bracknell and then one day the person who looked after us and I was selling brother fax machines said you don't yeah. fancy coming to join brother do you this was in yeah. 1994 so that's the compressed version there's a lot more yeah. to that but I said yeah why not and I got the job uh, and the just to sort of reiterate and emphasize that so you're you started at the ground level at brother in 94 and as um and as I understand like the following year you moved to uh, Manchester, which is where they were setting up, they well, had set up their UK head office, and 
our my interpretation for that is you that move is commitment to that role you're like i like this uh the you grew a career there um within a few years and sort of worked your way up what is it that you feel that um they as a company and particularly i'm referencing here head office mm, mm. saw in you as somebody um that's right to bring up through this business yeah it's interesting because one of the things that, that, that I do now is when anybody joins Brother, the first thing they do in their first week, they have a cup of coffee with me, the MD, and I get to meet them as individuals. And one of the questions that's often asked is, how on earth did you end up spending so long here? And at Brother UK, my longest serving member of uh, colleague is 40 years. Yeah. The second lo longest serving colleague is 39 years, and that's his wife. So married couple was 79 years, you know, uh, brother. I'm nearly 30. And, and my response to them is, I never expected to stay this long. I just thought this was a stepping stone. I'd do two or three years here and go on to your next job like you do. But when I have to then reflect and go, well, why do I think I've stayed that long? There's a few reasons. And this is what I explain in this sort of one-to-one -one what I have with people joining us is that our average is 13 years, which is pretty good for a company of 145 people. And the answer to that question is, is that uh, number one, um, I really liked the people. So the people at Brother, just fabulous. And I'd moved up from the south to the north and suddenly in the north, I found all these really uh, outward friendly people who tell you anything about their life, uh, if you'd ask, yeah. uh, which was a bit different for me as a southerner going north. Don't I would do be that like, down south. <laughs> very protected, was like, what do you want to know? Like, why do you want to know that? You know, why are you asking me that? So we're sort of very protective of ourselves. So I'm ever so glad that I'm, you know, I'm, I, that was a great lesson for me and just sort of be more human. So I really love the people. There all seem to be opportunities. So there all seem to be the company by nature of its, uh, what it does and what it makes. We always had to be very customer focused. We're always changing, restructuring. So there was always a new job to do, a little bit more work and well, can you go over there? So I was always sort of open to that. I was like, yeah, of course I will. What do you want me to do next? So that was really good. Uh, pay rem remuneration always kept up. Always, yeah. yeah, of course we need that, don't we? So I was always felt like I was earning better, got a better car, slightly bigger set of wheels on the next car, all these sorts yeah. of things. So I always felt that there was sort of some momentum there. But actually also I was growing a lot all the time. So the company would be uh, putting me on courses, investing in me and all that sort of stuff. And actually what I realized was, I didn't realize this till later in my life, is actually I love learning. I absolutely love it. I'm a voracious reader now, listen to podcasts all the time. I've probably learned more in my last 10 years of my life than I learned in the first 30 perhaps. So that taught me that, that your beginning never defines your end. And that's actually why that now I'm really passionate about you know, young people at our place, giving them the bridge in, because if, if, if you're like me, if you saw me at 15 years old and just said, what do you think that kid's got ahead of him? you know, shy, curly-haired, bullied at school, academically nothing, living in a council house on free dinners, yeah, they go, yeah, okay, nothing really ahead for them. And I just think that is a tragedy for our young people that you would be written off because of your background. And that's why uh, I really, really work hard to make sure that we've got bridges into the schools in our local community in order that if there is another 
a young person like me who just thinks, you know what, I just want to go down that route, then we want to try and provide that opportunity um, for them in order that might replicate what happened to me. Looking back at the, you just you just described the younger self, what would you do? Um, would they be doing what you're doing now? Would they be the CEO of uh, such a large organisation um, and shaping that? The Is there uh, an aspect that you reminisce or reflect from your younger years today that continues to push you today? One of the... Big reflections I had when I, you know, the first day that I walked into Brother UK as its managing director, you know, it was an incredible day for me. I, I just never, ever imagined I would ever, ever be capable to do such a role or have the opportunity to do such. I'd never dreamed of such a role, driven towards it or anything. It just sort of happened. And, and you know, okay, you can look back and you can unpack things. You know, I followed threads. I was always open to opportunity. I worked hard. I was good at what I did. You know, I was a good team player. I achieved goals. All of those things. You could look back and go, yeah, there's aspects of it. But there's got to be something special to get you there, right? But after about one year in the role, what I, what I looked back on and reflected was the whole journey was about here because actually I'm really good at this now. I think I'm now in the job I was always destined to be in. Yeah. And I don't say that with any hubris. What I mean is, is I love the job I now do because it has this variety uh, of doing so many different things all the time. I, I get to determine strategy. I get to work with amazing people. Um, yeah, of course, it comes with a huge payload of pressure and stress and different other things. Of course, that does. <laughs> but actually... I realized the entire journey was about that moment of getting into that seat and actually then, okay, now I'm here, what should I do for others? That was really kind of my big reflection is that what should I do for others now? How can I create an organization here that actually becomes world-class at what it does for all the things that are not just financial? We have big financial pressures, of course, in the business. Yeah. You know, that's what we run businesses, isn't it? We've got to hit the number, make the profit. And all, you've got to be sustainable. And so basically, my starting point was about how do we build long-term sustainability for the company? So if you look at it in that way, long-term sustainability, when you've already been going over 100 years, that's long-term. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a couple of years. Long-term is way beyond me. So how do I build... Uh, enough of a strength in this company by uh, creating connections with the local community um, in order we've got pathways of young people coming into our business how do we do good um, and and kind of the way I describe ourselves would be um, a privately owned enterprise with purpose so I'm not a charity yeah, yeah? I'm not driven so hard that we uh, would ever do something that we don't consider to be not on the right side of history. But what we will do is be run well, financially strong and doing good things um, at the same time. And that can be with, in, in, our, uh, in our company at the moment, our primary focus is uh, in our local community, uh, enterprise, the, the elderly and education. They're the three things we focus on. So education is about bringing the kids in, 
The elderly is actually also about respecting them as elders in our community because they can be fantastic, but there's a lot of social isolation, as we know, for elderly people. And enterprises is, is, do you know what? The more enterprising you make in an economy, the better it, it, it the raises the level of, ocean, of the ocean for everybody in that economy. It provides jobs, prosperity, bus services. It all, it all starts from enterprise, doesn't it? So... So that's where I want you know our core to be all the time, whilst at the same time doing all the clever stuff in financial strategy, channel management, sales, you know, sales teams, all of those good things, and being a fantastic employer. And that that's what I really picked out from the research for today was um, ultimately culture is something that underpins so much of what you do. And uh, from what I could take from researching your leadership style is that underpins all of that as well. Uh, without me put, uh, saying what, well, what is the culture to you? What does it mean? Our start point is, is we're not perfect. And all companies are dysfunctional. Successful companies simply manage their dysfunction more successfully. That's what we do. I just simply manage this better than most how do we manage that better than most good communication tackling things creating expectations meeting people understanding what's going on in people's lives i have an incredible back briefing process for my od people that allow me to understand everything milestone birthdays somebody's got a cancer diagnosis or somebody's partner might have a cancer the dog's died somebody's thinking of retirement, somebody's parent has died. I keep on top of all that information. So I can understand why distraction sometimes happens. Someone might be short-tempered, or we understand the neurodiversity that might exist in certain teams and why flare-ups happen, or where pressure exists, or where we're in a part of our season, like financial year-end, where there's a lot of stress. You've got to understand all of those things if you understand all of those things, you can manage the dysfunction me, more successfully. You remind me of our chairman. The uh, when I was originally looking, we we have two invest private investors in this business, and I pretty much made my mind up on one of them by walking around his core business. Mm-hmm. He employs uh, well at the time it was about 150, 160 people, and everybody spoke highly of him. And the more I got to know him, he knew everything about everybody. And he'd sit down and um, when he'd visit, when he does visit, he would sit down with somebody and a member of staff had just got a new puppy the last time he was here. He's standing like, how's the puppy coming along? It's, he just remembers everything and the impact that has on how people feel. Mm. Um, I've seen firsthand, um, especially when an organisation to the size of his of mm, these mm. are um, so um, insurmountable it may feel um, we have a small team here um, I can keep on top of that if we go to a team on a, if we go to a team of 150 I'm then starting thinking that's my memory goes and you talk about you have it, it feeds down your team which leads me on to a sort of another sort of almost statement question <clears throat> You have your purpose and values that you stand for. Presumably, you don't just put that onto a memo, send it out, and that's it, everybody. This is what we now represent. Um, job done. 
Absolutely. Um, so, so culture is really, in my opinion, the lowest level of behaviour that you accept and the decisions that you accept day to day. There's your common where you start from. I have a dotted line on my responsibilities to culture. Okay, so I don't um, delegate culture at Brother UK to my OD team. I've got a very capable OD team, by the way, that we, we're really tuned into each other. But, but I have to have that dotted line in because unless I have that, then you, in my view, you can't nurture your culture in the way that you want to nurture it. And you, you can't. And, and when you're walking around, you know, management by walking about, you need to be, you need to be equipped with the, the right information. So you do not want to have an awkward conversation with somebody and go, how are you today? Let's have a big happy, clappy high five if two days ago the dog died. You need to be sensitive. You know, you have to have situational awareness at all times. So my back briefing process is sort of weekly with my uh, director in this area. Yeah. And she would just give me all the things I need to know. This has happened, that's happened, that's happened. And they just mentally go in. And as I'm wondering about or I see people, I will just mention it and go, look, I heard this, you know, I hope you're all right. And, and that makes people feel like um, that you care. And I do care. This isn't about the optics. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. There is a, a theory that, well, you know, we want all the, there's no point investing all these people unless I know they're really committed and they're really staying. Well, you won't know that until you invest in them first. Yeah. So here's, a, here's an admission that if I think of when I was a sales director for Brother UK, so I'm going back to the early 2000s now, I, I was kind of in this place and, and it is the wrong place, which if someone's going to leave, you know, it's kind of like never darken my door again. <laughs> you're dead to me. You know, you're not part of the team, then that's it. You're off the bus. You know, I want to lob you off the bus. And yeah, it, it took me to grow up, I think, to, to realise that, that genuine happiness is if somebody leaves us now, you know, I will, I will go to them, look, I'm so sad that you're leaving, but could you have got your next job without working here? They're like, no way. No, that's great. So go away and please tell everyone, you know, to come back. So if, if someone earlier in their career needs to do what you need to do, will you send them to us? And, and that's the way to view it, yeah. is actually the conveyor belt then of, of fantastic people that you're sending into the marketplace. People kind of call it the brother university now. <laughs> and employers love it. If they've seen that someone's done experience at my place, then they see that as like a, a real kind of blue chip that is absolutely going to be solid person that's going to walk into our organization and do a great job for us and that makes me feel very proud so i'm no longer angry i'm actually very proud because that's part of the you know turning the whole flywheel of putting people thriving into the universe because it just ultimately comes back to us one of the things i've heard you talk about in the past is the environment and the climate climate within yeah. there and um, and the when we're talking about a, sort of the inclusion aspect specifically across the whole business um, and being heard aligning those two together uh, I went through a quite um, emotional training exercise for a charity that I uh, do work for working with children who are going through very difficult times and part of that training was 
completely, and I'm briefly <laughs> abbreviating it very much here, but get rid of the word wrong. Mm -hmm. right? um, it's just outcomes. And that was a big uh, learning curve for me that I brought into the business that I started implementing right away, that there is no wrong here. Um, coming from the mentality that everybody was wanting to work towards the strategic goal. If, you, if everything's all clear, everything knows where we're heading, every, everybody's aligned, which we were speaking about a moment mm, ago, mm, mm. nobody's going to come in here and intentionally try and sabotage the business. If they make a decision, they're doing it from a, a good place of thinking it's going to have a good outcome. So if it doesn't get the outcome we like, then it's fine, at least you tried. Okay, how do we move from this point to that point? And that's something I picked up from a conversation you've had when you've been talking about this before. So how, how does that work within Brother? Uh, yes, well, I, I think one of my really big watershed moments is I, I went away and, and trained to be a mental health first aider. So we, we wanted to um, have mental health first aiders in the business. It, it's something that I, I, once I began to see that that was a thing, I thought, you know what, we, we're in a climate, this was pre-COVID, where actually we know that mental health as a topic is on the rise. Uh, everything's changing and we then knew um, through the pandemic that, that mental health became a really big issue. Mm. And particularly post-pandemic, then suddenly we saw the um, tsunami effect, I guess, of actually what that period has done to the way people think, behave, act, what their perceptions of the world are, all of those sorts of things, aren't they? Everyone's um, saw that. I, I call it, people said they call it the big resignation. I don't, I just call it the big awakening. It was the moment when everyone sort of just awoke and went, okay, what do I want for my life? And a lot of people left relationships, left employers, or moved house, or <laughs> it was just a lot of change, wasn't yeah. it? We all went through a bit of a lot of change very, very quickly. Of course we did. But prior to that, um, I'd seen this mental health first aider uh, qualification. And you know, I was talking with um, you know, my colleague Louise, who, who's our director of OD and ESG, and, and said, look, I think we, we ought to have a look at this, you know. It'd be very useful um, to understand this better because when, when you have um, a caring and compassionate culture and when you create an environment where it's okay for people to tell you things, you've got to be aware and ready for the fact that you're going to open a huge massive box up and once it gets opened, all the frogs jump out and there's going to be a lot more than you can probably imagine ever existed. And we made that decision to open the box. You know, for me, having a caring, compassionate culture is about opening that box and going, if you do have that going on in your personal life, whether it be a divorce, uh, you know, a, a, a life impacting experience, a parent with dementia that you're trying to be a carer for, but dealing with all of that stress and horror at the same time of losing your parents, all that stuff, tell us, because we know that's gonna impact your performance. So once we'd sort of done that, I felt the next sort of logical thing to do was to put mental health first aiders into the business. But, but one part of that process was, was, again, I don't want this to be seen as an initiative. No. And in order for that to happen, I'm gonna go and do it as well. So I went through that education process. I've done it twice now, actually, as I've done the uh, MHF England course twice. And that is a fantastic course, and it taught me so much about 
mental health. And you know, mental health has been fairly omnipresent present in my life, my whole life. My grandmother had you know severe mental health issues. My mum had. Um, you know, mental health issues as a result of caring for her mum with mental health issues, you know, and, and, on, and on and on it all goes, right? And um, there we went through the entire spectrum of the mental health constellation. Everything from, you know, self-harming right the way through to autism and ADHD and all of these, all the elements on the spectrum. And I came away and I just went, wow, 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 okay. We, we just need to just take a step back here and we just need to really think about now how we interact with everybody in our organization how do we become more open to people how do we understand somebody if we take them on with uh, and, and they may have autism or they may have a you know a, a, a neurodiverse condition how do we accommodate them how do we educate people how do we make sure that they can uh, perform being themselves and in you know, in the round at our company and and that's where it all started for me so the trigger was mental health first aider we then had post covid then of course there was this huge period where we had the big resignation we actually yeah we had about 10% of our workforce actually move on and i was totally cool with that cuz a lot of that was retiring early People retiring at 55, just going, I've had enough. I've just, I've realized during COVID, I don't want this anymore. Um, I'm off to be, to be a hairdresser. Okay, are you? We never knew that. Yeah, no, but I've just realized I've been cutting my kid's hair for 18 months now, and I really like it. So I'm going to leave and become a hairdresser. Perfect. You know, off you go. So you then naturally come back into the market, don't you? And we all know the labor market has been incredibly tight post-COVID, right? Yeah. Incredibly tight the last two years. So absolutely, you've got to be completely open to anyone, anything. And I think that's a very good thing because all of a sudden now, it just means that, that people, I think, who maybe were finding it more difficult to secure employment previously because perhaps a neurodiverse condition don't now and employers are much more open to it all so by leading i guess from the front on this and saying this is what we're going to do we're going to be more open we're going to educate ourselves we if if somebody with a neurodiverse condition goes into a team we educate the team around them this is what it looks like and we'll understand and try and encourage that individual to also explain to people okay this is how i work this is where i might get overwhelmed i'm good at these bits if you need to, you know, you need something done, ask me like this or write it. So by having that ability to kind of give permission for that to exist, everything works really, really well. One of the things you looked at was the director's parking spaces. Oh, right. Yes. The, um, <laughs> this to me, when I was sort of researching for today, is this ticked the box for me as I listened to it. That This is somebody who isn't just saying something they're living by the values and they want to make sure that it makes a difference and this is this to me was like one of those tnt moments mm -hmm. um please share that story okay well yes i should show my scar on camera as well shouldn't i from the <laughs> from that period uh, but uh, people will understand what i mean by that in just a moment so yes so this would be in the uh, very early days where actually i suddenly became in the top seat so suddenly you've been the number two and now you're the number one and you yeah. go, oh, wow, okay, so what do I want for my culture? Well, I want us to be less power-orientated and status-orientated, and I'd like us to be more influence-orientated. Mm -hmm. So how do we shift from 
the traditional old style of the way that companies were run, big offices, car park spaces, salaries, titles, all these things, into actually what value do you bring to the business and how do you help influence the business for the future? And I've been reading a lot of books and going to a lot of conferences and it was it was from the Ministry of the Bleeding Obvious, honestly speaking, that just said that old pyramid culture is not sustainable and you're going to have to sort of start breaking it down brick by brick if you're going to want to rebuild. So I'm like, okay, well, one of the really big things that... that, that, that keeps status moving is things like big offices and car park spaces right and reserved yeah. car parking and with full disclosure the day i got my first reserved car parking space at brother uk when i made the board of directors i would tell anybody that listened that i had a reserved car parking space i proudly reversed into it on the morning <laughs> you know my name was on it and it was like i've made it i have made it look at me what a success I must be to have a piece of tarmac with, with two yellow lines on. You know, that, that really is it. But what I began to realise was, was actually, do you know what, that is probably sending a very poor message out to people. If in one breath I'm saying I'd like us to think about being one team together, then I'm actually not really doing that by allowing reserve car parking. So I went to the management me leadership meeting one day and uh, slid under AOB, didn't put it as a gender item, slid it under AOB. You know, we got all the work done, you get to AOB, no one's already normally got anything, have they? But everyone's sort of shuffling the papers, getting ready to say, sorry everyone, would you please sit down again? I have one item of AOB. Puzzling looks all around. Uh, car park spaces. I think if we're going to be building the culture that we want, it's about time we reviewed the idea of prioritised spaces. And I think it's time actually that we kind of do a big joint decision that we give these up. And actually what we do is we, we, we just make that car park a car park. So if, whoever's first here in the morning just parks where they want to park. Whereas at the minute we've got like 14 spaces that are empty and, and it just all seems a bit ridiculous. So I want to propose to you all that, that actually we uh, we give these up. So, so of course, you're, you're reading the eyes and the body <laughs> language, aren't you, Richard? And the horror, the wave of horror that went round the room. But of course, I was the new MD. They could see I was serious and there was a sort of a, a nodding of, you know, well, okay, you know, Okay, I hear what you're saying. All right, you know, everyone okay with that? So got sort of generalised consensus, fine. Off we went. Of course, the following morning, the visits begin, don't they, to my office. <laughs> morning, Phil. I've not seen you for a bit. Everything all right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yesterday, yesterday, you know that chat at the meeting? Yeah, 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 I do, I do. You know, you talk about taking the spaces of people. I said, yes, I did, yes. I said, well, you didn't mean me, did you? You know, mine's <laughs> gonna be okay, right? You're, you're talking about them, not me. And I'm like, no, everybody, we're all gonna do it. And actually, I'm just emailing, I'm just finishing an email now, she's going to the whole company. And that is gonna say that as of next Monday, the car park is, has been, you know, completely decommissioned, and you park anywhere, and I will pay the lunches for one month for the first person in who will drive in and park in what is the old managing director's space, 
which was space number one, which was the biggest car parking space in the whole car park, Rich. I mean, it just was crazy. And of course, that went round the business like wildfire. Everyone's talking, you know, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? It's a trick. It's an initiative. You know, someone will be in trouble, all of this sort of stuff. And so on the morning, on that Monday morning when I, I, I drove in, I came round and there was a Honda Civic on three wheels. And uh, one of the, the guys who was an engineer in my workshop had one of those gas strut systems in his car, you know, where you can sort of cruise along and bump the front and drive on two wheels and do like all this sort of stuff. California cruising. Like that. But he put it all into a Honda Civic, which just looked like an ordinary family car. And there it was, parked on three wheels with one wheel in the air. And I walked in that morning, I drove it, and I just went, there could not have been a better outcome for today than that. Because my point is, is that two things. One is when you're making changes, you have to send signals. You've got to send the signals. Something's changing here, and you've got to show the change. That's sort of number one, I think, was most kind of like, uh, you know, really, 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 really big thing. And I think the second thing is you, you sometimes, even in large organizations, um, change can be really difficult and change when people have embedded interest mm. in the current. So if there's an embedded interest there, which is self-serving, I feel like I've worked for this, it's part of my status. You've got to be ever so sensitive about it. And so now I'm really sensitive to these things that actually whenever we feel like we're making a change, first question is who do, who do we think is going to feel loss through this change? Is anyone going to feel loss? Because if someone feels loss, then you get friction, then you get dysfunction, then you get pushback, and, and it just slows you down yet again. But if you understand who's losing, you can get on the front foot with it and you can have great conversations with people. Yeah, no, that was really powerful and the bit that stood out to me when I first heard that story was that the action you took to make sure that somebody does it so that you, you the last thing if, if you turned up on that Monday nobody had gone to that parking space because they would have felt uncertainty and sort of like oh do I don't I then the it's achieved nothing it's remained the managing director's parking space because people are a little bit uncomfortable about going in there. So you pushed it down, buying, offering lunch for the month. And uh, when I heard the story about like one wheel up in the air, sort of like that kind of yeah. thing, that was the, um, I could imagine in my mind's eye, I've got a picture of somebody like, make sure I'm getting there at three o'clock in the morning. I want to make sure my car's there saluting to Phil as he's pulling into the car park. That's basically how it ended up. And, yeah. you know, I, I went to Jad after him. Jad, I never knew your car did that. Why? How? You know, and he, we then sort of sat going through his car for half an hour and he yeah. showed me all the tricks that it can do. And I was like, I was, I was amazed by that. But I think that that is it, that in corporates, you know, corporate life is very different to small business life. Of course yeah. it is. In corporates, people get initiative fatigue. They do. Because in big corporates, there's always top-down stuff coming, isn't there? That actually somebody invents something that they want and then instructs everybody to do this thing that the business is often trying to do, but sometimes the business hasn't consulted on. And then, of course, you get that absolute loads of 
problems and the change doesn't work and all these sorts of things. So I think there's another really good lesson here is, is actually never try and do too much change at one time. Right. You know, bits of change, let's get that done, then we'll do that one. So the sequencing or the syntax of change is also something that you know, we talk a lot about is, look, we want to change everything, but how should we do it? And let's just, sometimes you've got to do it bit by bit and you've got to understand your seasonality in your business. I've spoken about that earlier on. What I mean by that is don't put massive initiatives in, for example, in the second two weeks of March, you know, for us, which is our financial year end, everyone's distracted trying to push for the number, get the year end done, all this sort of stuff. The last thing they need is an initiative. So again, we, we might move an initiative and go, we're not going to do that then. We'll wait two more months. You know, is the business going to collapse if we don't do this for another two months? No. There's very few things generally, you know, in, in large corporates, which are going to bring a company down overnight, which involve cultural change or organizational change. So be patient about some of these things. See what your big rocks are. Sort your big rocks out, get your foundations right, build up from there. And I think this is where I see a lot of uh, corporate organizations just get it wrong. They try and do the wrong things at the wrong times, or they haven't listened to people, they haven't been sensitive to all of this stuff. Whereas I'm probably a bit more um, just situationally aware. You know, I'm sensitive, I've got like a spider sense to how the organization's feeling, performing. You know, you, you can look at all these data points and kind of go, okay, mood seems to be low right now. I wonder what's really going on. I think and you, you can cover those. You get that feedback coming back up, which you spoke about earlier, which never worked in a big corporate. So I can only go by perception, but that seems to be a perception that I and some other small business may have. <clears throat> but you, yeah, you've got your finger on the pulse there and you make sure you get that sentiment feed come up through. Yeah, I think this it's why I've managed to be, I don't know, semi-successful at what I do. If, if I led a company with 5,000 people in, it would be more difficult, I think, because I couldn't know everyone's names. I probably couldn't know everyone's families. I couldn't know every single health incident or underlying factor that's going on influencing performance. I'm in this optimum sweet spot, really, of, of, of 150-ish people. And about 150, if you put the effort in, you can really be close to those people and understand things and know what's going on in in the flow of the organization at any one time so so probably you know the way that i do things the high the bigger your company gets becomes more difficult to replicate so probably where i am is is ideal for me okay the we can't um pass up the opportunity having somebody who works and leads a large organization to address one of the desires that many small businesses have and that's how to win a large business as a client one of the uh, key topics that you do talk about when you give keynote speak mm. is <clears throat> that sort of how to sell into senior execs the having you sat here uh, especially as our audience are you know small business owners across UKBF what sort of advice would you give them Yes, um, I, I do have some advice and, and I want small businesses to be even more successful selling to yeah. businesses like Brother. I really do because actually um, there's a lot in that that makes our economy stronger. 
My biggest frustration is often probably that people don't spend enough time to understand the business or research the business properly. And what they're more interested in doing is just simply battering the door down and selling whatever they've got to us, regardless of whether we need it or we don't, whether it solves a pain point or it doesn't. It's just a blind, I do this and and yeah, I've come to sell it to you, even though we may not have a perceived need or anything, you know, and, and that's kind of like, okay, that's not gonna, it's not gonna fly. Um, equally, if someone might try and find you on LinkedIn, connect with you and the first message you get is oh, here's my price list and who do I need to speak to about this you know it selling to corporates is actually really about building relationships it's a longer game than it is a smash and grab game it's understanding networks within corporates who where does decision making really lie for example so if you're the local taxi company um, you don't ring me um, to, to be, I don't appoint whoever's going to be doing our driving services at Brother. Somebody else in the organisation does that. Um, so you've just got to find that person and it wouldn't be a significant enough piece of business. It wouldn't be in the millions, for example, for me to be involved in that tender or procurement process. It could be we're spending 50 or 80 grand a year and someone's just got the authority to go away and appoint those things. So don't always think it's the CEO that makes every decision. It's, you find out what we call the lobster, the line of business. Who is the line of business or decision-making professional? Take some time to get to know them. Uh, I would always say um, research a company and also understand if they've got a local procurement-friendly policy. We actively uh, look to buy from local businesses first. Yeah. Okay, we do. The second thing I would do is go away onto the government website and also check how well that corporate pays you. <laughs> yeah, because um, one thing you want to get do is, is be paid, right? Yeah. So at Brother, if you look at our uh, latest submission, we pay on average on 32 days. Okay, and I'm trying to bring that down to 25. So basically, we pay to terms. We yeah. pay to terms as much as we possibly can because as part of this uh, relationship that you want to build i believe i should pay you to terms yeah. you provide me a service it's a waste of everybody's time if you're trying to chase me for payment and cash flow in a small business means everything so if we generally want to live our purpose to help businesses and people thrive we've got to do our bit is we've got to yeah. pay you yeah. so don't be afraid of going to large corporates but basically do your homework line of business come in look to build that relationship over time make sure that the you know what you're selling is a good fit or there is a perceived need or you're solving a pain point for that that particular client and then you know begin to build that relationship and try uh, and see how you can move that on see hearing you say that it's just normal common good business sense um whoever you're selling to so whether it's you're trying to sell to a large corporate, you're trying to sell to the public, you're trying to sell to another small business, understanding who the decision maker actually is. Um, and do the, is there a need identifying and getting to know and building relationship? These are all standard things. There isn't a mystical, magic, different way as such dealing with a corporate as there is to a small business. Absolutely. And one other big, big thing I would say is is personalise everything. Just personalise everything. <laughs> uh, 
you know, yeah. we do this. You know, we're a big corporate selling to other big corporates. When we're out selling, we personalize everything. So if I'm trying to sell a printer fleet into a large retail environment, you know, 600 shops, going to be 2,000 devices, and we're trying to get hold of their CIO, they get a personalized message. They get a personalized letter or a personalized card or a book with a card in or something. It's totally personalized to create an impactful moment with that person in order that they go, aha. And we've sent out things like recorded video cards and things like that, that that just have that moment where we go, look, we have made effort here. We're making effort to get through your door for a reason. And this is what I think this reason is. Rather than, oh, hi, brother, or we're brother, we just want to sell you printers. Okay, that, that is not really solving that CIO's pain point, for example. A CIO might be wandering around going, my, my biggest pain point at the moment is I've been tasked to save 10% on my budget. So actually, his or her main pain point is actually running costs, yeah. not necessarily the technology, it's the cost. So, so you've got to understand that pain point and then come in and uh, with a solution. It's, it's selling 101, isn't it, you know, Richard? Yeah. It's selling 101. I've been in sales for 30 odd years. So for me, this just seems really, really obvious. But I I do get frustrated by, I think, some of the approaches that we take. And unfortunately, they just get binned or deleted because they're just not well researched or personalized enough. No. And for me personally, I feel because we're not a core, you know, we're a small business, but we still get the dear asterisk absolution mark name whatever <laughs> anything like that yeah, or yeah. any of the personalized and i think if you're trying to sell to me and you're not putting the effort in there once i'm paying and you've got me as a customer where's the effort going to be the uh, and i love the your comment about for brother in particular sort of payment terms the just personally for us we, we sign up to the better payment practice as a mm. small business and I always say we have a small network of suppliers you work with and I always work on the basis I want to be the customer you want to work with not the one that where if you've got I've got to do that for Richard and I've got to do that for so and so Richard pays on time Richard gives us a decent read Richard uh, is good to work with I get the priority of the time because that helps my business as well it's that simple isn't it yeah. it's just be that person yeah. That, that actually, look, there will always come to points where decisions are being made by people. Of, is it A or is it B? Yeah. And sometimes it's these things that make the difference. And so always be working on those sort of things that make the difference. So paying well, being a good payer, being a reliable company and being good to do business with. A lot of the suppliers that do business with us at Brother like us. Yeah. We have a genuine partnership. Our logistics provider has been our logistics provider for 40 years. I mean, how on earth does that happen? Local business you know, in Staleybridge, round the corner, yeah, has been our transport provider. They've been purchased now and they're owned by Connexia Logistics, but that was only six or seven years ago. So for that first three decades, a little business in Staleybridge was our transportation provider for the whole of the UK. And through our business growing, their business grew, and they become they became acquired, but the MD always looked after us, and everybody in our company. If I ever met them, at a, you know, we did a few football matches where we entertained them and things like that. They'd always go, our drivers go above and beyond for brother. Oh, why is that then? Well, because you appreciate them, and we'd send them a 
crate of beer at Christmas, <laughs> things, small things. Yeah. Or if someone's in our yard, I would wander over to a driver and just go, look, you know, thanks for keeping our promises. We really appreciate it. And sometimes those small things, they just go a long way. And it, it all stems to relationships. Everything, those things are all about having a genuine relationship. The I'd love to wrap up with one last question of May. Uh, as somebody who has a wealth of experience growing up through the organisation, um, you've learned a lot, you've, had, you've been invested within and you're now passing that on to other people. Uh, what key piece of advice would you give to anybody um, in the position of running a organisation um, for them to take away? Oh, that's a big one. Um, I'm just going to keep it simple, uh, which is for anybody, whether you're running an organization or you've got an aspiration to run one or start your own business, uh, I have a very simple um, concept, which is pursue mastery. And I'm going to coconut crack that down into two bits. Uh, Master your subject matter and master yourself. So mastering subject matter is about professionally investing, competency, skills, learning development, you know, never ever stop that, ever. You know, I, I'm in my mid fifties now, I'm still out there reading, learning, d- doing anything, I go to conferences and I just go, oh my goodness me, there's this world that I just don't, still don't know. Uh, so I know hardly anything, you know, in reality. And mastery of self is about self-awareness emotional intelligence, understanding your cognitive biases, the way that you think, the way that you react, who you are as a person, who do you want to be, finding that congruency in your life. Because once those things become really congruent, i.e. you've got this amazing flywheel turning to go, I'm getting professionally better at what I can do, I'm becoming more competent, but I'm becoming more self-aware as well. Those two things turning in parallel create a very powerful momentum for you as an individual. So whether you're the CEO of Brother or whether you are the CEO of a two-person company, never stop investing in yourself, ever. Uh, to the day, you know, you, you end the last day of your professional career, keep investing in yourself would be the only piece of advice I give to anybody because you will learn everything you need to learn around your job, your skills and yourself in that process. Couldn't agree more. That's fantastic advice. Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you very much for coming in. Very wise words and thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drive. I hope you found it insightful and useful. But before I go, have a look at the app you're listening to this podcast on. See that follow button? Give it a press and you'll be notified of all future episodes as they come out. It also helps us understand where most of our followers are and where to really be pushing this podcast to.